We want to welcome you to Genesis. My name is Paul Mumma. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis, and we are excited to have you today. I'm going to invite our host team to come forward uh, at this time and take our offering this morning. Uh, This is an opportunity that we have to give back to the work that God is doing through this church and even beyond this church. Uh, We don't want you to feel weird by this in any way if you're visiting with us. Uh, Don't feel awkward at all to pass the bag uh, to the person next to you. This This is a form Uh, of our worship. Um, So for Father's Day, my wife gave me this garage organizer system, and uh, I haven't actually gotten it yet, all right? There's like a big string attached to it, uh, because in order to get the garage organizer system and put it together in our garage, uh, there's kind of a step that needs to be taken, that is that I have to finish the garage, because uh, when we got our house, about half of it was drywalled in the garage. The rest of the house is drywalled, thankfully, or we wouldn't have purchased it. But the garage, half of it was drywalled. The ceiling was drywalled. But there's a good portion of it that's never been drywalled. And so uh, a few weeks ago, and, and I wondered what my wife was up to, really, in giving me this gift. It was almost like she knew, okay, if I'm going to get him to finish the garage, I need to give him something that's going to force his hand on this. Uh, she said to me, she goes, you know, I've been wanting to get the basement finished. So she goes, I might go out and buy you a big screen TV, but tell you you can't open it until you finish the garage or something. Uh, we, know, we know how she works, don't we? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, she gave me permission to tell you that. But uh, anyway, so we're putting this garage back together, drywalled it a few weeks ago with some friends, and, and uh, decided, okay, it's time to mud and tape it. Well, went ahead and got a quote on the mudding and taping, and there's like, no way I'm going to pay for that. And so Jenny's like, well, let's just figure out how to do it ourselves. So we, uh, we got on the internet. And believe it or not, you can watch a video on the internet of uh, someone demonstrating how to accurately uh, mud and tape drywall. And so on Friday morning, uh, set out to do just that. Oh my goodness, how many of you have ever mud and drywalled before, huh? We've got some people around there, okay, how many of you do it for a living? Does anybody do it for a living, like you have to do this regularly? Because it's the work of the devil, I mean it really is. Like, I I really believe that eternal punishment will involve a straight edge, drywall mud, and a sanding block one day. I mean, like, you know, it's putting this tape on and getting the mud to cover it accurately. I mean, I spent all day Friday. I mean, I'm talking from 9 o'clock in the morning till about 10 o'clock Friday night, mudding and taping, just even the first round, you know, on the garage. And I had to pull down old tape that had been falling off and everything. And I mean, it was nuts. And so I went to bed dreaming about it on Saturday, Friday night, and I was tired. And, and I woke up Saturday morning with all this enthusiasm again. And then I picked up the sanding block. And I started sanding these walls. And I'm up on the ceiling sanding, which is horrible, sanding a ceiling. And then I got started into this second round of mud. And then all of a sudden it hit me. Here I was trying to be a professional and say, you know, I'm going to do a perfect job on this. And then it just struck me. It's a garage, you know? I mean, we're going to park our cars in there. Kids are going to nick the walls up with bikes and everything. And so I've done the second coat. It's done. I'm not putting a third coat on. And I'm going to go back and sand it later on today. And I'm not even going to do a very good job of sanding it because it's a garage. And I got to prime it and paint it. But I will say, even as hard as it's been and even as sore as I've been, you know, I mean, you remember those episodes or the scenes from the Karate Kid, you know, all those different drills where he was sore the next day. I mean, I am feeling it today, you know. And, but anyway, um, this morning before I left, I, I just kind of peeked in the garage for a second. I mean, if you're a guy, you know what I'm talking about. You want to kind of examine your work, and it's not perfect, all right? And I know it's not, and I'm going to see all the imperfections. And when you come over to my house, you're going to find them too. But, but I, I, I just kind of turned on the light, and I looked in there, and it's like, 
all right, it's coming together a little bit. You know, I mean, I, I, I can start to visualize it. I mean, there's still a lot of work to do, but, you know, we're getting there. I mean, and, and this is going to be good. This is going to work out. And, and I, I was thinking about that kind of as I was driving to church today and just even thinking about our church and, and where we've come over the last year. And, and, and I'm pretty excited. Like, I, I'm pretty excited to see how things are kind of coming together around here. And, and, and we've got a lot to do. Uh, and there are some great tasks and some great challenges ahead of us. But, but God's been good and God's been faithful and it's exciting to see, you know, the things that are happening. If you were here last week, we baptized four more people, you know, in our baptism here. And that's exciting when you see that kind of stuff happening. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, our attendance is on the increase and our children's rooms are packed full right now. And, and those are great problems to have, you know. I mean, those are great problems to be thinking about. Okay, what are we going to do with all these people? And so, you know, we're beginning to have those conversations of, okay, well, how can we maximize this space you know, that we have here in this building. And, uh, you know, and we're launching into new things and taking a look at, at new tools and new ways of reaching people. I mean, we're, we're looking at our website, and I, I'm pretty excited to say that probably in about a month we'll have a brand new website. And, and we're going to, not just something that we can be excited about and go to and show off, but that we can use it as a tool. You know, our mission is helping people find their way back to God. Well, why won't we do that online as well? I mean, you, you point your friends there. You say, hey, why don't you just go check out our website or whatever. How can we use our website, you know, help people find their way back to God. And you guys have been great. I mean, this is the best part about what we do is, is, is just watching you all, you know, serve and, and, and give your lives and sacrifice and be involved with things like faith, hope, and love and, and give to the food drive and give to the school needs drive and just begin to even dream and imagine, well, what else can we do? And, and giving faithfully. I mean, you guys have done a great job of, of giving faithfully and giving beyond yourselves, and we've been able to give beyond ourselves as a church and, and give to places like Haiti and, and to other local ministries. And, and yes, I'm excited about the fact that we're starting, you know, 20-some small groups this fall and that you're going to have the opportunity to take a step and get connected with another group of people and not only build relationships, but read the Bible together too and study God's Word for yourself and be able to ask questions and, and have some of your questions answered. But everything that we do, you know, as a church, is all about people. It's about telling people about Jesus. It's helping people find their way back to God. And, and, and I, I can only wonder and I can only dream and, and only try and kind of imagine what this next season will look like for us. I mean, I think we do a great job with Sundays here. And uh, I think we're going to take a great big step when it comes to, you know, getting people into connection groups this fall. But I think the thing that's on the horizon that we have to be thinking about the most is what what does it mean for us to live, to be followers of Jesus Christ, to be the church outside of Sundays, Monday through Saturday, you know, here in this community? I mean, why has God put this church in Noblesville? Why are we here on this street, on Pleasant Street? What does that require of us? What are some of the real needs here in this community that we might not be yet aware of, but God's going to call us and ask us to respond to those needs in the name of Jesus Christ? And, and so I'm excited about who God's going to raise up, even out of this own community, you know, people that say, you know what, I'm really passionate about that. You can count me in. How can we get others involved? And, and I'm excited about being able to say, hey, we're doing this big project this month. We want you to show up on this Saturday and do this. But I'm even more excited to hear your stories of how you jumped in and started serving on your own wherever it was that God called you to serve. That's what it's about. It's about being followers of Jesus. It's people. You know, and we're about helping people find their way back to God. And uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm excited and I hope you are too. And, and let's keep praying about where God's going to lead us. If you've got your Bibles today, turn to John chapter 5. Go to the New Testament, go to the fourth gospel, to the book of John and turn to John chapter 5. We're going to continue in our series this morning as we look at these miracles of Jesus. And today I want to look at a miracle that took place at the pool called Bethesda. 
Now, I will tell you up front that this message was set to be a one-weeker, okay? And, and I'm, I'm kind of a planned person, and I schedule things out, and I had all set that we were going to take one week on this miracle, but, but, I, but something kind of happened in me this week, and, and so it kind of became a two-parter. All right, so we're going to look at part one this week, and then in two weeks, we're going to come back and look at part two, uh, and you'll be thankful that we're going to do it over a couple weeks, because otherwise I'd talk a long time, and we'd be here a long time, and nobody wants that. So, um, but I really believe and really feel like out of this text that there are at least two important questions that I want to ask you, one today, and God laid these questions on my heart, and, and one of the questions was pretty obvious for me as I started this study. It was part of the reason that I chose this text. But there's another question that wasn't as obvious, and that's the question that I want to take a look at today. And then in two weeks, again, we'll come back and take a look at the same miracle. So is that okay with everyone? Sound good? Everybody, if, you, if you have a problem with that, you can't do anything about it anyways. That's what we're going to do. All right? So John chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 1, let's look at this together. If you've got your own Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen. So sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, Jesus is on his way back to Jerusalem after spending time in Galilee. He spent a lot of time in Galilee. Galilee was a region. And Galilee was located to the north of Jerusalem. But notice here in the text that the Bible says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, as you read your Bible, whether it be in the Old Testament or New Testament, you'll find that on any occasion, no matter what direction people travel to Jerusalem from, they always travel up to Jerusalem. And perhaps it's geographical, but it also sets to point out that Jerusalem was the holy city. And so people always traveled up to Jerusalem, and Jesus here is on this occasion traveling back for this festival. Uh, it may have been the Feast of Tabernacles, some say it was Passover. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Well, now the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by these walls, and the walls contained specific gates or entrance points to let people in and out of the city. Now, one of those gates was called the Sheep Gate. And here in John chapter 5, as Jesus comes back to Jerusalem, after spending time in Galilee, He enters into the city by way of the Sheep Gate. Now, the Sheep Gate was a small opening on the north wall of the city. And just inside of this gate, according to the Scripture and according to other things that we know, just inside of this gate were a couple of pools. All right, these pools were used to wash sheep uh, that were going to be taken into the temple to be offered as sacrifices, and the pools were called Bethesda. Some translations say Bethzatha, other translations say Bethsaida, but most today say Bethesda, and the word Bethesda means house of mercy, okay, house of mercy. Well, we're given a brief description of Bethesda. We know that it included two pole, pole, pools. And not the above ground, you know, wannabe kind of pools, but the fancy in-ground kind, okay, right here, these two pools, and they were, they were surrounded by these five covered colonnades, uh, which provided a covering for all the people. I mean, it meant shade, okay, you know what I'm talking about? You ever, you've gone to the city pool before, maybe taking your family, taking the kids or whatever, you get to the pool around, you know, one o'clock on a hot day like today, good luck trying to find a table with an umbrella on it, all right? You have to get there before sunrise to like lay your claim on those sort of tables. Well, there's plenty of shade at Bethesda, and there's a reason for that. Um, verse 3, here at Bethesda, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And so that's the scene. 
I'm just trying to get that picture in your mind for a moment. Here are these two pools just inside the north gate, and all around these pools under the shade are sick people. Uh, they're disabled. They have handicaps, special needs. Some are paralyzed. And that's the setting. And that's where we're at today. That's where Jesus is heading. I mean, this is a sad place. I wonder how many of you have ever been to a really sad place like this before. I know some of you probably have. You know, my wife spent a couple of weeks in South Korea when she was in college, and as a nursing student, she served in an orphanage there. You can ask her questions about the handicapped children and special needs adults uh, that she served with uh, over a matter of a couple of weeks here in South Korea. And notice I said special needs adults in these orphanages meaning that many of them were there with their special needs and disabilities as children, but nobody ever took them home, no one ever adopted them, and so they've lived in these orphanages all their life. It's a sad place. I had the privilege of touring the Mississippi coast and New Orleans about a month after Hurricane Katrina hit, and there's two distinct differences between the two. Uh, Mississippi was blown away by the winds of Hurricane Katrina, and New Orleans was, was washed away. Uh, by the floods of, of Katrina. Now, what did they have in common? Well, in both situations, uh, people lost everything. They lost loved ones, they lost their goods, they lost their homes, and, and for a day, we got to interact with some of the families and residents of these communities and hear their stories and go into one of these houses uh, in, in New Orleans and just see, you know, the, the effects, the devastating effects uh, of what hurricane, hurricane Katrina caused in the city, a very sad place. You know, many of you have spent time in the critical care unit of a, of a hospital, maybe for a loved one, you know, and you watched your sick loved one there or you saw other sick people around you. Or maybe you've spent time on the cancer floor at the children's hospital or you've seen the sick, you've been to a nursing home and you've sensed the loneliness as, as it almost appears that some people just wait to die. Some of you have been on mission trips, you know, and you've got on a plane and you've crossed the ocean and you've seen illness and you've seen poverty and you've seen injustice firsthand, but some of you didn't have to cross the ocean because you went to just the right places in Indianapolis because it's there too, you know, even in the city that's just a few miles down the road. I mean, the reality is that there are sad places everywhere, you know, in Hamilton County and Marion County, right here in Noblesville even. And it's easy to overlook them. It, it's easy to avoid them. And the pool at Bethesda was a sad place, and, and it was a busy place. I mean, it was a tough to get a good seat, and people came from everywhere every day, and they just hung out there. You know, for some, it was like a second home, and for some people, it was their only home. I mean, that was their home. That was their place, and they never left. I mean, it was a sad place where the blind and the lame and the paralyzed went. And if you were healthy, and if you were rich, and you were passing by that part of the city, most likely you avoided it altogether if you didn't want to have to deal with it. It was easy just to avoid Bethesda. Well, there was this widely held belief that the waters at Bethesda were magical. It was, it was a well-known superstition. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, if you're looking in your own Bibles, look at verse 4. Okay? Anybody got a verse 4 in their Bible? How many people are noticing that they don't have a verse 4 in their Bible? I just noticed it this week too. You don't have a verse 4 in your Bible. It skips in most translations from verse 3 to verse 5. Now, if you're reading the King James Version, you might have a verse 4 here. Here's the thing. The earliest biblical manuscripts didn't have verse numbers, 
Okay, those verse numbers were added later on in time for our own convenience. And verse 4 has not been included in most Bible translations because most people believe it wasn't a part of the earliest manuscripts. That it was added later, it was added as a footnote of sorts just to give us some more information about what's taking place at Bethesda. Now, I believe it's accurate and most people believe it's accurate, but most versions choose to list it off to the side or at the bottom of the page just to show you that this is something that was added later over time. Again, kind of as a footnote. But here's what it says, John chapter 5, verse 4. From time to time, this is the superstition now, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters okay, in the pools at Bethesda. Now, here's how it worked. The first one into the pool after each disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. And so the superstition worked like this. If you were chronically sick, okay, if you were disabled or if you were paralyzed, whatever it may be, you name it, you would go to the pools at Bethesda and hope that one day you could be healed. And so as the superstition went, occasionally the hand of the Lord or the hand of an angel would come down and would stir these waters at the pool of Bethesda. And then all of a sudden, someone from the side would notice that there was a disturbance in the pool. And the next thing you know, it's like every man for themselves trying to get into the pool. Because the first one, according to the superstition, the first person in the pool would be healed. Now, back to the public pool again, okay? You're there with your kids. You know what it's like? They have those... uh, 10-minute adult swims that we all love and cherish, where all the kids have to sit on the edge of the pool while the adults splash around in the pool all by themselves. Well, if you're a kid, and if you remember being a kid in this moment, you anticipate the whistle, all right? And you sit on that edge, and you know it's been about time, and those lifeguards start to climb back into their chairs, and and you watch. It's kind of like the 100-meter dash. I mean, you've got to anticipate the gun. And if you're a kid, you're anticipating the whistle, and maybe some here were anticipating, you know, the disturbance in these waters. So that whenever the waters of Bethesda move, somebody would shout out, everyone would notice the reaction, and it was a race to get into the pool. And according to the superstition, the first one in the pool was healed. Now, all jokes aside, okay, I want you to try and imagine the scene. Disabled, special needs, sick, paralyzed, lame. Someone's just noticed that there's a disturbance in the water. I mean, can you imagine the sad scene of people who have been, all they've ever known is being sick trying to get into the pool with the hope of being healed. And you know there had to be some that just stood on the side once in a while, the healthy, that just laughed and kind of took it for amusement. I mean, it's a sad picture. Now, official Judaism did not agree with the superstition that healing took place at the pool. I mean, it was a myth. And healing pools were common in the ancient world, especially in the pagan religions. But the intelligent in Jerusalem knew that there was no magic at Bethesda. I mean, they knew that it was a natural spring that fed these pools from below and that occasionally these springs would bubble and the water would bubble out from the bottom and create a disturbance in the water. I mean, they knew this, but they just kind of looked the other way. I mean, I mean, just imagine what it's like, you know, believe what you want. You know, we don't know what to do with you anyways. Go hang out at Bethesda. Maybe those waters will heal you. We don't know what to do with you. But every day people went, and they waited, and if you were fortunate enough to be the first in the water, you waited to be healed, but as far as I know, there's no record to suggest that anyone ever walked away from the waters having been healed. 
And if you didn't make it, if you weren't the first in, you just kind of held out hope for another day and believed maybe tomorrow would be your day. But then here comes Jesus, and He's been away from the city for a while, and He's on His way to the temple, but he's in, He enters in through the sheep gate, and rather than walk straight to the temple, He walks straight under the covered colonnades of Bethesda. And while most would have avoided Bethesda, Jesus our Savior, the one that we seek to follow, the one that we seek to be like, He walked right into the middle of the mess of Jerusalem. And as I was preparing for this message this past week, it's right here that God stopped me. And I was sitting down in a coffee shop on Wednesday and reading my Bible, looking at the computer screen, you know, getting ready for Sunday. And I really felt God say, Paul, I want you to stop right here. And don't race past this, and I know that you've got, you know, verses 5 through 9 on your mind, and you were thinking application regarding those verses this week. But I want you to deal with verses 1 to 4. I want you to deal with them personally, and then I want you to show them to others. And, and so get uncomfortable with this picture, or just stop here for a moment. And God laid two questions on my heart, and I'm going to ask you one today, and then again in a couple of weeks I'm going to ask you another question. Again, it's pretty obvious. But the first question is not so obvious. And after reading these first verses and trying to get this picture in my mind of what this place looked like, here's what I felt God asked me. Paul, are you becoming more and more like Jesus Christ in the way that you live? Paul, are you becoming more and more like Jesus Christ in the way that you live? Because here's how it goes. You know, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. When I was 12 years old, I gave my life to Jesus. I put my trust in Him, and I was baptized, you know, in my church. And I believe what Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live. You know, the life I live, I live in the body through faith, you know, through Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. Or 2 Corinthians 5 17 that says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That you are brand new, that you have this brand new start, that, that God is doing this work inside of you. And I believe that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, God starts doing this transforming work inside of you where he shapes you and he molds you, helping you to get to be the person that he wants you to be. And that, that, that project, you know, that he has started inside of us will only be completed and will only be fulfilled the day that Jesus Christ returns to this earth you know, to claim us, you know, as His own. And so I'm being transformed more and more into Christ's image, and at least that's the way it's supposed to go. I mean, God wants me to be like Jesus. Jesus is the teacher. I'm the disciple. You know, Jesus is the example. I am the follower. And so I get this picture of Jesus in John 5. I mean, here's Jesus. He's on His way to the temple. Where does He go first? He goes straight to Bethesda. He goes straight to the sad place. You know, and the Gospels are full, you know, of Jesus spending time with the sad and the lonely and the broken and the hurt. And I, I can't help but ask, am I willing to do the same? I mean, I'm not trying to be Jesus, but I'm trying to be like Jesus, and I, I believe that's what God has asked for all of us. And so am I willing to live like that? I mean, here's Jesus. He's the one I chose you know, He chose me. He's my Savior and Lord. He has called me to follow His example, to love as He loved, to live as He lived, to choose the people He chose. And, and so I have to ask Him, am I becoming more and more like Him? I mean, is there a noticeable difference 
and the way that I live, the fruits of the Spirit in my life manifesting themselves in me, I mean, has that, has that changed? Have I grown, you know, in the last year, the last five years, the last ten years? And am I willing to walk into those uncomfortable places today, the loneliest places in our community? You know, not for my glory, but for God's glory and to be more like Him. I'm not sure I'm where I need to be on this one yet. I mean, I think I still fight this one a little. And Jenny and I were in St. Louis uh, over a week ago, and we were able to go there for one day, one night, and, and celebrate our anniversary without kids. Uh, and it was awesome just to get away for the day. And we, we spent time in, in the St. Louis walking around. We toured Bush Stadium and, and took in a Cardinals game. And so it was a great time away. And, and downtown St. Louis is a sad place. I mean, it really is. It's a great city and all with, you know, the Arch and, and, and the Cardinals. But, you know, one of the things that I noticed that there were so many poor people on the street. I mean, so many beggars and panhandlers out during the day and at night. And as we walked around the downtown, um, you know, it made me a little nervous. I, I found myself being a little bit more aware uh, of my settings and of the people around me, uh, just trying to keep an eye out on what was going on and who was going to be coming up from behind or, or walking out in front. And, and as I sat in this coffee house this past week and God hit me with this question, I, I couldn't help but reflect back on that time again and even that visit and some of those people that we saw. And unfortunately, I don't think I'm at the place yet where the reality of the pain on the streets of St. Louis, you know, broke my heart much the same way it breaks God's heart. You know, that God's heart is, is, is hurt for those that are lost or that are far from Him or that are hurting and oppressed. You know, am I becoming more and more like Jesus? And again, I'd like to say yes, but I know that I've got a ways to go, you know, that God's still doing that work inside of me, that He's still working with me on this one. And, and I've been trying to be faithful in my prayers as, as a person, you know, and as a pastor, you know, asking God, what is it that He wants to do in my life, and, and what do I need to work on, and, and, and what He wants to do in your life, and what He wants to do in the life of this church, what He wants us to be about. I mean, who does God want us to be? Who has He called us to serve? I mean, what will define Genesis Church? What will we be known for? And as I think about these questions, I, I can't help but ask the same question of you that God has asked me. Are you becoming more and more like Jesus in the way that you live? Now, just hang on that for a second. Are you becoming more and more like Jesus in the way that you live? I mean, is He creating an urgency in you for lost people? Does your heart break over teens who choose destructive lifestyles? Do you grow sad over failing marriages in your family or in your neighborhood? Does it make you uncomfortable knowing that people are starving and dying in places like Haiti? Does it bother you that this happens in Indianapolis too? And are you doing anything about this? I mean, are you becoming more and more like Jesus? I mean, I think we have to wrestle with this sort of question, and, and I think we have to take a look at Scripture to see more and more how Jesus lived and how He acted. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, am I living like that? You know, we've got to ask ourselves, where are the Bethesdas around me right now, and, and do I choose those places or do I avoid those places? Now, I'm not out to make anyone feel guilty today. That's not the point of my message. That's not the point of the question. But as we think about the type of people that we want to be, as you think about the type of person that you want to be, I mean, is Jesus that person that you choose to model? 
Is he the one that you want to be like? And then naturally, we've got to take it a step further and think about our church and that what do we want our church to be about? I mean, do we want to be able to say, you know, we've got the most unique building in town or, you know, we get to dress casual. You can wear shorts, you know, to our church. And we've got the best music around. I mean, these are great things. No doubt about it. Is that what we want to be known for? Or do we want to be known by our love? You know, do we want to be known by, you know, what we're doing beyond this place, what Monday through Saturday and even Sunday looks like you know, our lives and in our ministry. And I mean, who do we want to be like? Who do we want to model? Our mission, you know, as a church is to help people find their way back to God. And this September, we're going to spend four weeks just kind of unpacking what that means for our church. And I think it's going to be a defining time in our church as we take a look at our mission vision and where we feel like God's leading. And it's going to be a starting point for us. I mean, this is a great project ahead of us, what we feel like God's called us to do, and so we're just going to start, and we're trusting that God's going to lead us, and it might be a little messy once in a while, but we're going to do what He's called us to do, and it's going to be a great thing. But I really think that those four weeks, again, will lay this foundation and create this starting place for us to be able to communicate this message that, you know, Jesus Christ died for us, you know, that He is the hope of the world, and we talk about it every week, you know, Jesus Christ died for sinners, you know, he died for me, and He's given us new life. He's given new life to everyone who will put their trust and their faith in Him. That's the story of the cross. That's the story that we've been asked and challenged to communicate to others. And, and as the cross saves us, and, and it's the story of the Bible. I mean, if you go back into the Bible and you follow the entire story of the Bible, it all leads to the cross. I mean, Adam and Eve, they were in the Garden of Eden. They sinned. All right, they were ashamed of their sin. They were naked, and so they hid. And what did God say? God said, Adam and Eve, where are you? And in that question, you know, this redemptive plan, this plan of restoration, you know, began with God, you know, seeking to help people find their way back to Him. And so this one question kind of launched God's plan of restoration, and, and He raised up Abraham, and He said to Abram and to Sarai, He said, you know, pack your bags. You're not staying here any longer. I'm taking you to a new place. And He moved them, and then He called Moses. You know, He called Moses out to help move His people from Egypt to this new place, to this promised land. And then when they were stuck in the wilderness, He gave them the law. You know, He gave Moses the law. He gave the people the law. He gave them the Ten Commandments. And the law established God's holiness. It helped people to see how far they were from God. You know, the law established a difference between right and wrong. It established a difference between injustice and justice. You know, the law, people, the law gave people a sacrificial system. It laid the foundation for mercy and for forgiveness. You know, the law provided a way for the people to stay on center. But unfortunately, the law required perfection from people. I mean, if you wanted to be right with God, you had to live a perfect life. And what was discovered over time was that no one could reach that perfection. And so everyone fell short, and then nothing happened. All right, for four of the people were sent into slavery, and for 400 years, nothing happened. God was silent for 400 years. And then one day, He raised up a homeless man, a, a weird guy by the name of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist came forward preaching these messages, saying, prepare the way for the Lord. And then Jesus came. And God's kingdom arrived, and Jesus lived with purpose, and He lived with a plan, you know, and He lived with intention, and that plan for Jesus included the cross. I mean, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on the day that the people shouted Hosanna, He had one thing on His mind, and that was that He knew that He was going to the cross to die for, for people, he, to die for you and me. And, and so the cross saves us. 
You know, the cross gives us hope. The cross gives us life. It's why we exist. You know, the, the cross gave way to something else too, though. You know, the cross gave way to the resurrection because three days after his death, Jesus conquered death. And while the cross saves us from something, the resurrection saves us to something. Let me say that again. While the cross of Jesus Christ saves us from something, it's the resurrection that saves you and me, that saves the church in this world today to something. The cross screams, you can be forgiven. The resurrection screams, this world matters. The people of this world matter. The sick of this world matter. The oppressed of this world matter. The lost of this world matters. And Jesus knew that. And that's why he marched straight into Bethesda. And he knew he would die. And he knew that death would not be able to keep him. But God had a plan to make things right in the world again. And that plan involved Jesus. And today, that plan involves you and me. That plan involves you and me. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, before Jesus ascended into heaven, these were his final words. You've got to believe your final words are going to be some of the most important that you share. I mean, Jesus has got one last thing to say as he goes. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me you know, by my God, my Father in heaven. Therefore, go, the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so Jesus unleashed, you know, this mission in the disciples to go and to share the love of Christ, to go and to share the message of Christ with everyone that he came in contact or that we came in contact with. Go and make disciples, you know, be like Jesus And that's for you and me too. I mean, the Great Commission stands for you and me. Helping people find their way back to God is about you and me and our purpose and our plan and why we exist even here today. And so I ask, are you becoming more and more like Jesus? Are you becoming more and more aware of the needs around you? You know, fellow students who don't know Christ or co-workers trapped in hopelessness or maybe neighbors who have no eternal focus at all, or family members you know, who have no thought of Christ or what salvation is about. Here's what I want to ask you to do. You know, pray and ask God to show you what He sees. I mean, if you're interested in becoming more and more like Jesus, pray and ask that God will give you the heart of Christ. You know, pray and ask that God would give you the, the eyes of Christ to see what he sees. You know, right here in Hamilton County, ask God to show you the hurting. You know, ask God to show you the poor and the oppressed even around us. Ask God to show you the sad places, you know, in your life and in your workplace and even in your own neighborhood. But if you do this, and don't be surprised if God asks you to respond and do something about it. And I think that's where I am right now. God, what do you want to do through me, and will you give me the strength? Will you give me the heart to love as you love? Will you give me the eyes to see as you see? God, will you do that in the people of our church? You know, will you move inside every single one of us to be more and more like you in the way that we live, in the way that we treat our families, in the way that we treat our coworkers? You know, in stepping out and reaching some of those people in our community that nobody wants to deal with. 
I mean, that might be a part of who we're going to be, folks, to go searching for those people in our community that no one else wants to have anything to do with. That might be us. And if it is, are we willing to do it? Are we willing to be God's church? Are we willing to be like Jesus and to march into those Bethesdas even right here in Hamilton County? I mean, God has called us to this community. There is no doubt about it. We are called to Noblesville and Hamilton County, and I couldn't be more confident of this. And the worst thing, the most dangerous thing we could ever do would become so focused on ourselves and believe that they're not hurting people around us because there are. And the cross saved us from sin, and we are a new creation today because of the cross of Jesus. But the resurrection, it saves us to something. It saves us to a new way of life. It saves us to purpose. It saves us to intention. Are you becoming more and more like Jesus? I hope you'll make that your prayer this week. Let's pray. God, we know that it's not an easy task to be like Christ. But we also know and believe that you will never call us to do anything that he hasn't already done. And God, I wouldn't expect in any way for every one of us to be at the exact same place, you know, even with this question right now. I know that some are just beginning their journey you know, some are, are, have been into it for a few years now and some have been into it for their entire lives. And so that question means something different for each of us. But God, I pray that you'd ask that question of us this morning and continue asking that question of us this week. What do we need to do to become more and more like Jesus? God, would you show us the way? Would you show us the Bethesdas of our life right now? We trust in you and we give you all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.